Welcome to the DTV podcast for January 2024, volume 62, number one. My name is David Fazakli and I'm DTV's deputy editor. Hello, um, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. I, I just got to say, it's lovely to see you, by the way. We- I, I, and, and you, I, mean, I suppose we should say that at this point, this is the first time we've recorded in person since I think it's the 3rd of March 2020. And we're back in BMA House. We're in the recording studio, which has been, I think, pleasantly improved. It's been tastefully renovated, I think. And we've got some new kits. That's good. And we've got um, Letitia and Brian in the booth above us waving to us. So, yes, the band is back together. (laughs) Fabulous. So that's good. Um, And the other thing to say is Happy New Year. This is, uh, I was calculating the other day, this is nearly 15 years of DTB podcasts. And I worked out that if you've listened to every single one of the 162 episodes, you will have spent 41 hours and 22 <laughs> minutes of, <laughs> of your life, um, which is enough time to have run 20 and a half marathons at world record pace. It's 41 hours you'll never get back. (laughs) Well, 41 hours we hope we've entertained and informed. Indeed. Okay, and one couple of other things just to talk about in the the notice section. Um, We've we've had some feedback from a listener uh, who's asked to do something on attention deficit hyperactivity disorder on the basis is that they're seeing a lot of demand coming through from people who are worried that they may have ADHD and acknowledging limited capacity to do anything about this. Um, James, any thoughts? Yes, I, mean, I think it's quite a while since we looked at the evidence behind the medication, and um, particularly for adults. So I think it's something we'll definitely look at. And I think the other aspect of it i mean we have got an editorial actually we're going to publish probably in february or march looking at some of the problems around the shortages of adhd so yes it's on our radar it was picked up at our editorial board meeting at the end of last year so yes we will do something on that um, this year and lastly before we hit the content a brief follow-up to last month's dtb we published the article on semaglutide and the evidence for it uh Barbara and Joel, who wrote that article at the time, did not have access to the full results of the SELECT study. That's now out and published in New England Journal of Medicine. And we will come back to it and summarise it in a future issue. But James, do you want to pick up something about the headlines and the way it's presented? Yeah, so the headline, which you you may have seen, is that uh, there's a relative risk reduction of 20% in patients who were randomised to semaglutide for about three and a half years compared to those that had a placebo. And that's the headline people have seen, 20% reduction in this. Once again, it's one of these very large primary outcome composite, which is, you know, MI, um, fatal MI and non-fatal MI, that, that sort of composite stroke as well, I think was added to that. But of course, the devil is in actually what the absolute risk reduction is. And that was actually as 1.6%. So about 6.5% of patients in the semaglutide group after three and a half years had had one of these primary outcomes versus 8% in the placebo group. So 1.6% absolute risk reduction or a number needed to treat for about three and a half years of 63. So I think, yes, it's it looks positive, but I do wish people wouldn't use the relative risk reduction as a sort of headline because it does seem to overemphasize the benefit sometimes. And it wasn't, you know, it was in various journals who reported it. They just took the 
key message that it's 20% reduction without exploring it in, in any detail. Um, so we'll come back to that. We'll, we'll look at it as a select item and, and pick out some of the other figures from it as well. Okay, let's start the January issue with Julian Treadwell's editorial. James, over to you. Yes, yeah, so this is right up my alley. Um, this is about continuity of care. And Julian has looked at the evidence for benefits from continuity of care. And just to just to clarify what, what we mean by that, because I know in some countries we talk about longitudinal relationships rather than continuity of care. So this is the idea of a repeated contact between an individual patient and a doctor or healthcare professional, rather than the concept of going to the same place every time, which is what sometimes is used as continuity of care by, by certain countries, particularly the USA. So he looks at the evidence surrounding continuity of care and the benefits. He looks at a systematic review that was published in 2018 and a more recent study of 4 million patients in Norway, um, an observational research study published last year, and just reiterates how important it is around patient satisfaction, concordance, hospital use, seems to reduce premature mortality, at least as an observational association between reduction in premature mortality and continuity of care. So, and I think this is very timely given there's a lot of talk at the moment about continuity of care and how important it is. And I think this just highlights that. And I think that timeliness is quite interesting because coincidentally, we just picked up a report from the Health Services Safety Investigations body that they'd done a, an investigation into a patient where continuity of care had failed in general practice and highlighted what happens when that continuity doesn't exist and and you know one of these very sad cases where there was a delayed diagnosis and ultimately the, the patient patient died because there was a gap in that continuity of care and i think they are now pushing that the gp contract include continuity of care as an essential requirement yeah and i think that's great i mean i i'm all for it uh, we've We've actually, I got conflict of interest here. Um, I work in a practice that believes in continuity of care and we still have personal lists. Patients can choose who they see, but we um, suggest that they see the same doctor every time. And um, it's, I think for, for doctors, it's better. You get the opportunity to develop relationships with patients which can last for years and which are in themselves very satisfying. And I think it develops that level of trust which allows you both to be very honest with each other. And that honesty enables the real issues that patients might be having to come out. So rather than just accept the doctor's word and walk off and never take this, their statins, a patient will actually be able to express to you that they don't want to take it. And then you can have a proper discussion around why that might be and actually be totally honest about everything. So for me, you know, it's ever since I read Barbara Starfield, who people may recognize was a public health doctor from the States who really pushed um, the importance of primary care and continuity of care. Um, I've always been uh, a great fan and will always remain so. Uh, and having slightly lived through a period where maybe that has been downplayed by either politicians or the, or the NHS as a whole, it's good to see it coming back into focus and being a, a, a an aspect of care which is seen as important. Absolutely, yeah. The pendulum has swung back the other way and that's all good. Of course, the issue, and I totally appreciate that if you're working in a busy surgery where you can't get doctors to work, it's a nightmare for you because it may be that you are just working in a sort of 
on huge numbers of patients. Perhaps you also work in an area where the throughput of, of patients is very high. It makes it very difficult. But I think as a as a concept that is effective, and I think um, it was it Martin Marshall, the past chair of the Royal College of GPs, he said, you know, if relationships with GPs were a drug, NICE and other guideline developers would have to mandate their use. And, and I think anyone looking at how to make general practice work in the next 10, 20 years has got to make sure that continuity of care is front and centre to that. Okay, thanks Thanks for that. Uh, let's look at one of the DTB select items this month, which we've, put, we've, we've discussed at length, um, off air as it were. So this is a safety update from the MHRA. Uh, well, James, you, exp- you explain it and talk about our reservations. Yeah, so this is... Um, an MHRA published a uh, report on the association between statins and myasthenia gravis. And they've requested that um, market authorization holders have to update their product information for any medicine that contains statin to include um, the concept that statins may well be associated with myasthenia gravis. And and I think what's been difficult is really the looking, trying to find the evidence for this. You know, why why is this suddenly come out of the woodwork? And it seems to be based on ten yellow card reports over the last twenty eight years uh, that have noted or suspected there's an adverse reaction involving myasthenia gravis. Now, trying to unpack what those ten individual case reports were is difficult. It looks like three were actually worsening of myasthenia gravis in people who already had the diagnosis. And it seems like only one case there was a re-challenge, which of course is what you really need to do to be absolutely sure that the statin was involved. But I just left thinking 10 cases, how many million patient years have we got of uh, evidence for statins? I, I just wonder whether they thought through the unexpected consequences of something like this. And and the idea, I think it's actually suggested in the safety update that that you should actively warn patients of the risk. Now, if you're warning people who've got myasthenia gravis already about starting a statin, that seems reasonable. But to have to warn every patient starting a statin or on a statin that this is a possible consequence of their treatment, what are the unintended consequences that that may lead to amongst patients who may then say, well, actually, I don't fancy the statin although the risk is very small. I agree. And I, and I think what's odd is that I think it's very useful to recognise that there's this possible link. And what's interesting is a couple of papers that have questioned whether there might be a link between statins and uh, myasthenia go back to you know 2002 and 2008. So if you like, the, the question mark over this has been out there for 20 years or so. I think it would have been useful to have highlighted there may be this element and, you know, certainly if you see a new patient with myasthenia gravis, the first thing you might want to do is think, well, are they on a statin? Is it worth stopping that to see what impact that might have? And that, for me, is the learning point. I've got, you know, hundreds of patients on statins. But if one of them develops myasthenia, then I might think, OK, let's think about that. But the concept that I have to raise this condition, which is not in common parlance, you know, if you say to someone there's a risk with myasthenia gravis, they're just going to look at you and think, oh my goodness, that sounds terrible. And I think that may well lead to some uh, inhibition in taking the drug unnecessarily. So I, I just wonder whether the MHRA have a, a a bank of GPs they could talk to about what are the possible implications of this and how best would it 
be to make sure we can put the safety message across without actually having an impact which might be less safe when you think back to the contraceptive pill scare that we had where you know actually more patients were harmed because of the scare than actually were being harmed by the problem in the first place so i do think there needs to be some measure of thought when you start raising these these particular issues to make sure that what we get out of them is the right outcome which is better safer medicines for patients and as we've you know we've discussed before there's this issue of warning fatigue mm. that if, if it's then going to be flagged up on your clinical system as another alert how many times can you see these before you start to ignore them or override them and what we're really after are the important ones the ones that are going to make a real difference to people either make their the lives safer uh, or identify risks sooner but this one feels odd yeah and i just wish there was someone saying okay and we've started now looking at um gp data to see you know whether there is a major issue here you know i'd love someone to be doing this for, with ppis and magnesium because i've been dutifully checking magnesium levels in patients on long-term ppis i've not come across one patient yet with an abnormal magnesium now, perhaps i never will is it a real issue is someone looking at this to decide whether actually we can knock some of these warnings off it would be really great to think we should be actually doing that but anyway we are where we are and i think it's a case of just being aware out there if you listen to this podcast there is this risk or link between myasthenia like adverse effects with statins and just be aware of it and that i think is the most important message here Okay, thank you very much. And finally, our main review article, and it's a topic we haven't covered for some time, is an update on the management of acne. Uh, worth putting out a few highlights? Yes, it's it's a great update um, because obviously the, I think NICE produced some guidance quite recently, uh, but this is really goes beyond that in a big way. It actually explains some of the issues behind the guidance. Um, and I just uh, think it highlights the issue that we probably overuse oral antibiotics for acne um, and that we need to be aware that when we do prescribe them, we should be prescribing an, a non-antibiotic topical treatment as well. Also raises the recent guidance from HRA regarding um, Roaccutane or isotretinoin, uh, particularly the issues around specialist prescribing and monitoring and, and the, the risks around potential mental health problems and sexual dysfunction. So a really useful um, review of acne, one of those ones where it, it takes all the really useful stuff and, and puts it together in one place. Oh, and the other thing it talks a little bit about, which we have, I think, mentioned in a DTB Select, is the growing evidence for spironolactone in women with persistent acne. I mean, that's an off-label use at present, um, but I think there's growing evidence that that might be very helpful in some patients. And it's also spironolactone has been looked at. There's a scheme of work under the NHS where they repurpose medicines that are off patent um, and the possibility of, or looking at the possibility of licensing it for acne and they're exploring that. Don't know how far it's got, but that's certainly in their work program. So that's interesting. And the other couple of points that I picked up on, obviously the importance of treating early and making sure you, you get people at, a, at an early stage but also supporting them that they aren't going to see benefit for quite a while, so six to eight weeks, and therefore supporting them through that phase that they don't give up and that they don't just stop taking it because they're not seeing any 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 improvement, but actually supported through that process. Um, and the last one was about 
if they do stop their systemic treatments because they've come to the end of a course, whatever, they still need to carry on with their topical treatments. Oh, and one last thing, a lot of the, or there is a risk that they go for sort of cosmetic treatments that are actually not any good. So talk to your pharmacist, talk to your GP about the products you should be using and try and avoid the ones that are just sold as, as, as cosmetics, which won't do you any benefit. I agree. And, and, and the last thing, actually, which I forgot to mention, which I haven't seen anywhere else, is there is a section on the management of acne in skin of colour. And that's really helpful because I've, I've not seen that anywhere else. Excellent. OK, thank you very much. Uh, you can find these and all our articles on our website at dtb.bmj.com. All 41 hours and 22 minutes of our podcasts are also there. So if you have a gap in your life, go and listen to them. Um, if you want to help us, then you can suggest content, suggest articles you'd like to see written, offer to be a peer reviewer, or even offer to help write articles, and we can help you with that process. So just contact us on dtb at bmj.com. So last thing to say, thanks for listening, and hope you'll be able to join us in a month's time for the February podcast. <laughs>